entered the Doctor's Lounge, the radio show where you get to hear where doctors and nurses uh, get to talk about what's important to them in healthcare policy. Uh, our show is sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, a 501c3 organization devoted to the empowerment of doctors and patients and devoted to the uh, pursuit of free market solutions for the problems facing healthcare. So whether you are a physician or you're a patient, and that just about covers everyone, uh, we have important information that, that you need to know. Uh, good morning again. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for joining us today. We have Twyla Braze on the line, uh, who will be uh, helping us tackle a multitude of, of things that have happened in the last couple of weeks. There's more there than we have uh, time to cover in an hour. Um, but uh, we believe that uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. I, I think the dawn of a new era in medicine is, is coming fairly close. I think the ground is beginning to shift uh, favorably for once under our feet a little bit. Uh, practicing doctors are, are finding their voice. It's part of what we're devoted to is for doctors and nurses and other people who touch patients to, uh, to find their voice. We're networking. We're finding each other. We are exchanging ideas. We're refining the message. And uh, we're finally doing some of the homework that uh, I wish we had done decades ago, but uh, we're getting it done now. Uh, this past week, uh, the Docs for Patient Care Foundation participated in a conference call among the leaders of many grassroots uh, physician groups. They call it the Multi-Physician Group Conference, and I think they're going to do this on a regular basis. But, but all sorts of groups were there that a year ago, a year and a half ago, we had no idea that each other existed. Uh, groups like the Let My Doctor Practice group with Mike Strickland and Dan Craviato, the Benjamin Rush Foundation, uh, a big group called Physicians Working Together, uh, Meg Edison's group, Rebel MD, uh, the AAPS, uh, American Academy of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, the Physician Moms Network, which by itself represents over 70,000 physicians. And all of these folks, we are all finding each other. We're all getting together and refining the message, uh, gaining wisdom and knowledge from each other. And what that means to you, um, whether you're a doctor or you're a patient, is that uh, if you're frustrated, with the healthcare system, if you're angry, uh, if you're a physician that's depressed, and there are a lot of us, uh, if you're feeling burnt out, or even, uh, as it turns out, potentially, you know, having suicidal thoughts, and that turns out to be about 7.2% of all physicians now, um, that the isolation is ending. Uh, the, the suffering in silence is coming to an end as folks find each other uh, in doctors' lounges and, and in places like this show and other places all across uh, the country. And this is not melodrama, by the way. Uh, the Mayo Clinic recently published its annual update to these statistics. 55% uh, of all physicians show signs of burnout. That's up from the mid-40s from last year. Um, and you might say, well, everybody's burnt out. Well, the overall population number is about 25%. Among doctors, it's 55%, and that's up from 45%. Yeah. How many doctors show signs of depression? 39%, 4 out of 10. And again, that statistics that a whopping 7.2%, 7 out of every 100 doctors have had serious thoughts about just checking out completely. And that is a, is a terrifying statistic. But, uh, you know, in the midst of all this darkness, I think uh, the dawn is, is fairly close at hand. And we've had a whole bunch of things going on this week. And, and, and Twyla, thank you so much for joining us this morning because I, I don't think I have the, the bandwidth to cover all this by myself. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So let's, let's start off with probably uh, you know, the, the biggest headline of the week. 
um, which was uh, for the listeners uh, when the uh, acting administrator of CMS, right, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, these are the folks who run Medicare and Medicaid in Washington. So this is a big person and a big deal. He gave a speech to uh, the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference out on the West Coast uh, and said some stuff that just kind of rocked the entire health IT space and uh, physician space. Well, he, I mean, it's, it's sort of interesting because he said, um, amongst many things that he said, because you can look up his speech in line, but um, he said that the end of meaningful use is near. And so meaningful use for your listeners is the government's mandate um, in a law in the economic stimulus bill in 2009, the mandate that every uh, doctor uh, hospital use electronic health records, but not just use them, use them meaningfully, which means like the government wants them used. So for all sorts of things like reporting or capturing data um, uh, or uh, following guidelines, treatment guidelines that the government thinks is the way medicine should be practiced. So he said meaningful use, this requirement that all these records be used the way the government wants them is going away. However, <laughs> yeah, it's really not. And uh, and so he did a tweet that um, I don't I don't have the words right in front of me, and you may have them. Yes. But basically, he said um, we're losing or we've lost the hearts and minds of doctors, and we've got to get them back. Yes, that was the essence of the tweet. Is yeah, we need to get the hearts and minds of physicians back. I think we've lost them. That's right. I think we've lost them. But so. Not really getting them back, and meaningful use is not really going away. Technically, yes, but because of what Congress did in uh, April of last year um, with the MACRA bill, they created a new payment system for doctors. Actually, two two options, and one of them um, will require the use of electronic records just to make it work. The other one will require doctors to be scored as to whether or not they use electronic medical records. So, you know, this is all kind of technical, but the, the reality is the hearts and minds of doctors, yes, it's a problem. He's acknowledged it, but they are really not seeking to cure it. Well, I, I almost laughed out loud when I, I read that tweet, especially, uh, you know, we lost the hearts and minds of doctors. I mean, that's like the captain of the Titanic coming out of his stateroom, seeing the bow of the ship disappear beneath the waves and going, gee, did we hit something? I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it's about 20 or 30 years too late. And uh, it's, of course, meaningful use isn't going away. And yes, it's technical by design. Uh, you know, that's how you hide what you're doing by putting it behind uh, a bunch of technical stuff and, and taking, you know, meaningful use as a, as a formal label maybe going away. I mean, meaningful use may be exiting stage right, but it's just going to go and hide in the back row underneath a trench coat and sunglasses. It's not going away. And, uh, you know, yeah, this, this whole thing is just is, is pretty ridiculous, I'm afraid. But I, I think the other really important thing to understand is who Andy Slavitt is. Yes. So Andy Slavitt, who is currently the acting director of the Medicare administration, is actually a former very high-level executive of United Health Group. And so this is an amazingly cozy relationship between managed care and government in the fact that he was hired for this position. 
And so now what you see, you know, he believes in managed care. He believes in outsiders directing the practice of medicine. He is now in charge of all the uh, regulations that are coming out over doctors and and in the support of health plans and managed care. Um, so, you know, this is... <laughs> Here's a, here's a man whose entire drive in his former employment was towards managed care and taking the, the power out of the hands of patients and doctors. And now he's in a powerful position at the government level, and he's doing no less than the very same things, but at a completely different and perhaps even more powerful role, role to implement managed care for all nationwide. So if he comes out and says something like this, my my suspicion, especially with, with those thoughts in mind, Twyla, is that this was probably, at least has the potential to be sort of a calculated political move that was designed to, you know, take your enemy, right, physicians and other people who, who touch patients for a living, and sent us into a, into a tizzy talking amongst ourselves about what this actually means – while, you know, they go on doing work that they hope the rest of us don't notice because we're distracted. <laughs> well, yes, I think, you know, this is like saying, we care. We see your pain. Yeah. We're doing something about it. But in but the fact of the matter is, and I don't know what your uh, listeners know, but the, the administration, uh, Andy Slavitt's uh, Medicare administration, is right now writing a... A performance measures rule, and they're asking doctors to comment on it, and it uh, by um, March first, and it's going to be implemented and finalized by May first, and it takes all of these things from a Congress from the law that Congress wrote, the Doc Fix bill that Congress wrote in April. It takes this new payment system on resource use. Uh, resource use measures, quality measures, clinical improvement measures, and the use of the electronic health record. And it's making uh, performance measurements. It's asking the doctors to talk about them. Got two, you know, you got, a, uh, what, six weeks here to give your opinion. Two months later, they're going to publish it. It'll be final. And it'll tell the doctors everything that's going to be collected on them that they're going to be graded on. And if they, if they, if they are graded poorly, they can have an up to 9% reduction in what they are paid for every Medicare patient. Indeed. So, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no real, we care about you, we feel your pain going on here. It's like, okay, we got into trouble about meaningful use, now we'll just switch to another thing, and you'll at least have only one reporting system, that should decrease your pain but we're still going to put you under our thumb, keep you under our thumb, and penalize you if you don't comply. Absolutely. I mean, the whole thing is intellectual and financial and political slate of hand. It allows them to be semi-truthful when they go up and say, okay, meaningful use is over, and the physician community was, you know, it was a reaction like, you know, if the commandant of the gulag says you get an extra cockroach with dinner, everybody cheers. I mean, we're so desperate for, you know, a a, uh, a ray of sunshine to break through the dark clouds that, you know, for about three or four days, everybody, I mean, I was getting emails. I don't, I don't know what your world was like, Twyla, but I was getting emails from everybody going, oh, look, look what happened. Meaningful use is going to go away. Let's all have three cheers. And I said, look, you know, this is, this is nothing but uh, the, a deception and, and, and slate 
hand and to, to, to mislead us for a while and distract us for a while, maybe just long enough for them to, to you know, keep us out of the comment period and let them write the rules that MACRA allows them to write like you were talking about. And, you know, maybe this whole thing was all very calculated. But here's, here's some interesting data, Twyla, and I don't know if you've had a, a chance to see this, but this is on Sermo, which is the, the Docs blog. Um, we put up a, a survey. And we put a question in there that said, here's what Andy Slavitt said, which is exactly what we're talking about, which is meaningful use is going away, and we've lost the hearts and minds of physicians, and we need to get them back. And the question was, what is your reaction? And we gave them four options. One was, great, the government's finally listening to doctors. This is a wonderful thing. That's option one. Option two, uh, meaningful use was, was a great thing when it started, and it's time to, but it is time to end it. Option three was, we love meaningful use, we wish it would stay. And option four was, look, we don't trust the government to do everything right. So the breakdown of the responses with about 2,500 doctors weighing in, so a pretty large N, uh, is that uh, 60% chose the don't trust the government option. So whatever Andy Slavitt's selling, I don't think the doctors are buying. Um, you know, or maybe 30% of them are, but because uh, the 30% said, oh, great, the government's finally listening. Those folks may be in academia or something like that. I don't know. But, um, but only, only 11% rated meaningful use as favorable, and uh, the, the rest said, you know what, this is meaningful use doesn't, doesn't work. So um, I don't know, at least among the folks in SOMO, and surely there's a selection bias there, but um, I, don't, I don't think people are really believing what they're trying to say. Well, that's wise. And, you know, even, even those who said, well, great, the government is listening, are people who are clearly dismayed by what the government has done. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? So, <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk about this some more in the next segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
Welcome back. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. Uh, we have on the line giving me some very much-needed intellectual firepower to talk about all these things that have gone on this week is Twyla Braze, uh, the uh, president of the Citizens Council for Healthcare Freedom and the author or the originator of the Health Freedom Minute, which is a one-minute uh, blurb on health care that uh, goes out to what, Twyla, some 300 and almost 400 stations? Yeah, 368. We just got Utah um, in uh, 42 states. Oh, that's fantastic. So yeah. what kind of content do you put on there typically? Um, we do all sorts of things that we think just the average public would be able to understand and be concerned about and would be willing to listen to for one minute. So it goes everywhere from practice to genetics to privacy, uh, sort of the whole gamut, you know, guns and HIPAA, the whole, you know, which has been out recently, all of that kind of thing. Presidents, their, um, their policy statements. So we're talking about Bernie's Medicare for all uh, plan, I think, next week. And so it's, it's a huge variety of issues. And is there a website people can go to to find a local station that carries that? Yes, if they go to cchfreedom.org, cchfreedom.org, we have the last five right there on the homepage, and there is a list of stations um, right next to it. And, of course, they can always listen to the archives as well. It's all there right on the homepage. Great. That's fantastic. I would certainly recommend that to everybody who is uh, who's listening to us, whether it's live here on Thursday mornings from 8 to 9 or a rebroadcast on America's Web Radio or as a podcast, and we're up to some 18,000 podcast downloads per month. So we thank the listeners for our growth and uh, ask you to support uh, Twilight, the Citizens Council for Healthcare Freedom, and the Health Freedom Minute. So um, we've been talking about this uh, earth-shaking but maybe not so significant an announcement from Andy Slavitt, the acting administrator for CMS, uh, talking about the meaningful uses going away thing. I mean, is there, um, is there anything positive that comes out of this, do you think? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, is it... I'm having a hard time thinking that it does. I think, you know, the best thing that's happening is perhaps what you said... And, and actually, you know, just about the fact that doctors are now starting to come together and the voice of doctors and the voice of patients is growing at this time where the voice, or not the voice, but the power of, man, of managed care is, you know, escalating because of Obamacare. And your listeners may or may not realize this, but um, managed care is corporate socialism. It's socialized medicine. It is the funding and the delivery of health care all into one. And you see it even more now as plans are starting to buy hospitals or like Kaiser Permanente is going to create a medical school, right? Because they want to teach doctors to do medicine the HMO way. Well, that is the, like the last thing that the patient needs. They need a, a doctor yes. who is critically thinking about them and their care. They need to know that they'll be treated as an individual, not as a widget. They need to know they won't get just standardized medical protocols, but the ones that actually work for them, right? So yes. um, so all of this is happening, and I think you're right. There is a major shakeup happening here, but the HMO has been looked at as the method du jour, you might say, of imposing national health care uh, on this country. So Medicare was the single-payer system for the elderly, 
then when, you know, it was a sort of a run on the treasury when all the elderly figured out that it wasn't going to cost them anything to get care, then Kennedy and Nixon came together and, and passed the uh, HMO Act of 1973. So that was HMOs mandated for employers to offer them. And then we have Medicare Advantage, which is HMOs for Medicare. And then we have uh, HMOs for everyone in Obamacare. So the whole plan for quite some time has been to build a national health care system using the HMO in this country. So that's sort of like, you know, single-payer American style. But we now have the doctors revolting, and we have all of these patients under Obamacare having these huge deductibles and huge premiums, and they're looking for doctors who will give them a cash-friendly price. They're actually starting to look for something different at the same time that doctors are starting to rise up and say, no more. So, you know, this is a very difficult time for health care. The drive, the power is still all for having the government and the corporations run it. Um, but the, the, uh, the little people <laughs> yes. are rising up, and that's very exciting. Yes, Agreed, and and you know everything that you're saying about the HMO thing is is so true. I mean, now we just have a different three-letter acronym, right? I mean, now we call the model an ACO model, uh, and this is. And if you go back, and you had mentioned this briefly in the first segment, that you know there's the sound bite or the quotation from Slavitt's speech, and then there's the text of the entire uh, transcript of the speech. Uh, which, you know, as, as you mentioned briefly in the first segment, if you read the whole thing, you know, immediately uh, there's a wet blanket kind of thrown on the party when you see the other things that he's talking about, including the ACOs. Right. Yes, the ACOs, which have been called HMOs on steroids. Yes. Um, and ACOs are when the, when the GOP-controlled Congress last April... Uh, passed the SGR bill despite the fact that the Medicare actuary told them about a week before that it would be worse for doctors than the 21% cut. So despite that fact, the SGR was uh, repealed. This new choice of two payment systems was put into place, and one of them is called the alternative payment model, which gives doctors the ability to pick <laughs> between all of the ACO or all of the Obamacare lump sum or bundled uh, payment options, which, of course, will require population health and tracking people into their private lives and trying to keep them healthy, you know, and uh, harassing them, you know, or, or lump sum payments where doctors divvy it out over the year, you know, all of these things which are not patient-friendly but are very much rationing friendly. So uh, so the whole ACO model is um, moving because it was part of Obamacare, and now there's, what, 477 ACOs around the country. People are yeah. being put in them without knowing that they're being put in them, and we're moving towards lump sum payments, capitated payments for all. Um, and so, yes, a wet blanket for those who understand really what he's talking about. He is, after all, a managed care executive. He is just <laughs> managed care that has now gotten a foothold inside the government itself with the power of regulation to actually make it happen. But it doesn't mean it has to happen, because I think as doctors and patients rise up, we can actually stop it. Or simply go around it. 
like you were saying. It would just simply make it, you know, useless. Yeah. Like it won't work. (laughs) Yeah. Well, just, I mean, just like you were saying, I mean, and we talk about this at Docs for Patient Care Foundation talking about the, um, the direct primary care model, which allows patients to contract directly with uh, primary care physicians to get their care for basically the cost of a cell phone for an individual and maybe $130 a month for a family to four to get 90% of the care you need and just an inexpensive wraparound policy to cover the rest. Uh, I, th- I think there is the potential to, you know, leverage what patients are demanding. You know, it may be an irony in Obamacare that uh, they've make, made it so onerous to work within the system that it becomes more attractive to go outside the system and in a world where you know the price of oil can drop to $27 a barrel after it was close to 100 maybe nothing's impossible nothing is impossible and as a matter of fact what i try to tell to get the public to understand because this is why the public is afraid and they're afraid of healthcare prices and what i like to say is the price of today does not have to be the price of tomorrow and you can see this when you start looking at things like, you know, the Oklahoma Surgical Center or the Patmos Clinic in Tennessee or some of these concierge practices. You can see that it does not have to be as expensive and it doesn't have to be as scary uh, as soon as we get all the third-party payers out of the way. And so Obamacare in that way has done us a favor by making all of these people suddenly realize they're going to have to fork out cash, tons of cash, before the insurance company is even going to look at them, yes. even going to think about funding one of their expenses. So now we have the regular American public who has never thought anything different, who suddenly realizes, oh, no, I'm going to have to pay for this with my pocketbook. Where can I go? And now this is really an opportunity for doctors to start to get themselves out from under uh, you know, these big systems, big groups, um, contracts, you know, stop signing contracts and get out there and uh, advertise your services, put your prices online, make yourself available to all the people who are now starting to look for you. And I don't know what you know about health sharing, but the health sharing yes. organizations, which are not insurance, but their members share the expenses of each other, Yes, they, their membership has skyrocketed because they're one of the exemptions to Obamacare. So um, all of these people who are members of the uh, of these organizations are out looking for physicians with cash prices, cash-based, pocketbook-friendly prices. So this is like the perfect opportunity for doctors who are burnt out, doctors who are, you know, tired of everybody telling them how they have to practice. This is like the perfect opportunity to, to look to get out of the system, to get out of the contract, to get out of Medicare, to get out of Medicaid, but to also offer your services charitably. There's no reason charity should end. Charity has always been part of the healthcare system, and charity is the least expensive way to give healthcare, the least expensive way to give healthcare, um, you know, for those who truly are in need of it. Absolutely. And, and once you get out of the overregulated environment, all of a sudden you're incentivized to do things like telemedicine because you have the opportunity to offer patients something of value and charge them directly for it. And now, you know, that becomes attractive. In a third-party payer system, nobody pays for a telemedicine encounter, so why would you do it? You get the same price whether you're, you know, pushing the limits of, of appropriately applied technology 
or if you're just sitting around with uh, you know with, with with a crappy EMR, there's there's you get Medicare pays the same whether you're working hard to be the best or whether you're just sort of you know schlepping along, you know going out of that paradigm and into a situation where you need to work hard to attract people and you can charge a fair price. All of a sudden, you know all of the perverse incentives go away and the stars line up much better. Right. And, and actually, you know, we're moving to a system with the HMOs and the ACOs and the EHRs and all these new payment systems where the doctor will really not be in the court with the patient. They will not be the advocate for the patient. And the patient really, patients have not changed since the time that there was a first patient. What they want is somebody who will care about them. But when you have all of these managed care controllers, right, and if you're a doctor submitting to it or you're going to be a doctor trained under Kaiser, you're not going to have, you know, perhaps even the most excellent doctor. Because the most excellent doctors are going to want to use their brain to figure out how to take care of you the best way that works for you. And that's the kind of doctor that every patient wants because every patient feels their own vulnerability. They feel the danger that they could lose their life or lose their quality of life. They don't have the skills you know, that doctors have and all the training that doctors have, they need somebody who is on their side. And so when you're out there as a doctor putting yourself out there and actually working hard for the patients and not just getting patients given to you as long as you follow the treatment protocols, you know, that's the kind of patient a doctor wants and that's the kind of, I'm sorry, doctor, yeah, that's the kind of doctor the patient wants and that's the kind of doctor that patients are actually looking for and will be willing to pay for. We'll pick this conversation up after the break. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
Hello and welcome back. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. I have with me very badly needed and appreciated intellectual firepower from Twyla Braze, uh, the uh, president of the uh, Council for Healthcare Freedom. And we have been talking so far today about um, the ground shift, shall we say, a, a paradigm change perhaps, a, a sea change in what's happening in the physician community and the community of folks who touch patients for a living and interpreting that in the context of some very interesting stuff that has come out this week. Uh, We talked about uh, Andy Slavitt, the CMS acting administrator, talking about uh, meaningful use going away, but no, it's really not. And uh, a poll of physicians on a blog on a a website called Sermo that uh, basically says the doctors aren't buying what he's trying to sell. Um, but uh, in this segment, Twyla, let's talk about some of these other stuff that has sort of come out at the same time that maybe wasn't as noticeable because the the, uh, the Andy Slavitt speech took up so much bandwidth. But there's a bunch of neat stuff that's gone on with, with other groups and, and some of these groups that were on this big conference call uh, last week. Uh, Meg Edison's group, Rebel MD, she wrote this open letter to the American Board of Pediatrics. I don't know if you saw that. Um, that basically told the American Board of Pediatrics to kiss off as far as uh, maintenance of certification. Uh, we've got an interview with the president of the AMA, Dr. Stephen Stack, who uh, interviewed with the Chicago Tribune sometime recently, not sure exactly when, but uh, talking about the fact that the government is making the practice of medicine almost impossible, uh, highlights the role of EMRs. Um, we have a an article written by um, Dr. Robert Wachter, who is the author of a book I talked about last week at length called The Digital Doctor that spends a couple of hundred pages just beautifully outlining why electronic medical records are failing doctors and failing patients. And he came out with an article that was written in the New York Times, uh, published January 16th, talking about how quality measurement is failing the healthcare profession, and he draws parallels with how quality measurement is failing the teaching profession. And this has a particular interest for me because in Atlanta, you know, a year or two ago, we had this huge scandal amongst City of Atlanta teachers that was uh, relevant to the No Child Left Behind regulation where Atlanta teachers, realizing that their jobs and their pay were on the line, uh, that a group of them succumbed to temptation and started uh, fudging the students' test scores, you know, pulling out the eraser and, and number two pencil and remarking those standardized forms to improve the scores and be sure that, uh, you know, they were able to, you know, keep their, their pay and their jobs and everything intact. Uh, but that's an excellent article. And then there was this um, uh, huge article that, that came out in the Journal of Patient Safety, right? This is not a journal that everybody reads who touches patients for a living, but this was, uh, to me, a, a, an absolutely shocking article on the incidents and the nature of the errors that originate from an electronic medical record system that, quite frankly, again, not mincing words and not exaggerating, quite frankly, is killing patients through things like decimal errors in drug doses, um, pathology reports that get filed wrong in the system that the provider doesn't see. Uh, and, you know, we'll go into that in a little bit of, of uh, at length, but I think maybe what we're seeing, Twyla, and tell me what you think of this, is sort of a destruction of the narrative 
or at least damage to the narrative that the the government's putting forth, just like you were talking about in the first segment of sort of, you know, ramming all this down our throats and saying, you know, we know what's good for doctors because we're the government. We know what's good for patients. You know, we want a top-down design, arbitrary quality measurement, forced technology. But I think we're seeing a lot of stuff come out in some very interesting places that, uh, you know, perhaps that narrative is beginning to fall apart. Right. So you've got, you know, sort of like two levels here, right? The yeah. regulatory, we're just going to keep pushing. Obama's in for another year. He's already said he's going to use regulations for the entire year to push everything that he wants. Okay, so you've got that. And then at the other level, you've got the under the the uh, the underside here, which is starting to burble up to push on that uh, on that process that he's planning for. So it's not going smoothly. Uh, what I what I will say about the whole thing about errors and decimal points, you know, I um, have long time not had a physician with an EHR, but then um, switched a physician that had an EHR. The only medical errors that I have ever had, medication errors that I have ever had, is from the EHR. I mean, like it was, I think, a Friday night when I went to get an antibiotic that was ordered for me, and I took it home, and I didn't open the pill bottle. Uh-huh. <laughs> or I would have seen there was one pill. <laughs> <laughs> nice. One pill. <laughs> I had to go to the pharmacy the next morning, and we had to figure out how to get hold of the, of the doctor, right? Because it's a whole it's a weekend. Right. And um, so um, the doctor just pulled down the wrong thing, and you know, clicked too quickly, and you know. And another thing where something was ordered and that thing didn't even exist, and so the pharmacy wouldn't fill it because, you know, it was on the list of drugs and she did the wrong one and it wasn't there. And so it's like, that's never happened before. (laughs) Well, exactly, and that's the, and, and the problem is that this technology, I mean, it eliminates handwriting errors. Okay, fine. I mean, that was the proponents of this years ago would harp on illegible prescriptions and, you know, handwritten stuff and say, you know, this is awful and we have errors. But at least we understood those errors. You know, a pharmacist knows what to do when a prescription is written and you can't read it or you're not sure what the numbers say. You know, we've handled that for decades, so we understand it. Uh, What we don't understand is how errors occur in in the presence of information technology, and that's what Wachter's book, not so much the article in the Times I'm talking about, but his book, The Digital Doctor, um, gives a 20 or 30 page account of how an error in his own hospital, and this gets talked about a lot, this is this child that got a 40-fold overdose right. of an antibiotic, right? right. I mean, we've, we've all heard about that one. That the, the, the daisy chain of events that led to that mistake started months or years prior to the event when, you know, committees were set up at UCSF Hospital to configure the system. And decisions were made about what alerts you want to use, what alarms you want to use, what parameters, you know, how how small does a patient need to be before you force a weight-based dosing protocol rather than an adult dosing protocol. And, you know, just the way these events all strung together coupled with the culture of, of trust in technology that, that you get, I um, mean, you know, as you figure if a computer prints it out, it must be true, uh, that led to that. And, and then you combine that with this, this review of, of malpractice-based stuff, right? This is not near misses, right? This is patients who were injured and patients who died. 
and you know you read things like I mean here's an example from the article a a primary care provider could not access the patient's radiology studies at the time of the patient's visit right we see that all the time um, the paper results were filed right scanned in the system and signed off without it coming across the doctor's desk and a lung can uh, a diagnosis of lung cancer was delayed you know, this kind of stuff. They've got an Ebola-like event here where a physician was unable to access the nursing emergency department triage note. I mean, that's a basic of, of ER care is that you read what the triage nurse has to say. That used to be on a clipboard right at the top of the page. You always knew where to find it. And a, um, a subarachnoid hemorrhage was missed and the patient died. So, you know, if you, and then you realize that each one of these errors probably has a six-month to two-year daisy chain of events behind it that, that we simply don't understand. There's an entire you know, basic science and clinical application of health information technology. It's like any other branch of medicine, right? You talk about thoracic surgery, say, right? We have the physiology of the heart and lungs, and then we have the clinical application, and you, know, you don't touch a patient for that problem unless you understand it. And yet we have this entire legitimate medical subspecialty of health information technology and we're being forced to practice without the basic science and clinical knowledge and it's, it's actually an experiment yeah and it's like the, the entire clientele of american patients um are being experimented on this um the ehr i think that the ehr left to its own devices and physicians own decisions and clinics own decisions about what they want, it would have slowly evolved, and it would have been something that would have been helpful and used for perhaps not the entire episode of care. It's hard to say exactly where it would have evolved to, but all of the EHR vendors would have had to produce something that actually worked for doctors and nurses. There's something new. EHRs don't work because they don't even follow the natural workflow of taking care of a patient. So they would have naturally evolved. If you wanted to sell the product, they would have had to please doctors and nurses. But as soon as the government said, thou shalt all use EHRs or be penalized financially, suddenly these <laughs> vendors yes. just got out there and tried to snatch you know, part of this uh, essentially $30 billion in federal money, and they didn't have to create a system that worked. And now we have all these systems, right, and they're creating all these problems, and people are dying and and. You know, people are being harmed, and it's and and even the FDA has admitted that people have died because of the EHR. Yeah. So it's not like the EHR is bad per se, but it should have been allowed to evolve into what actually worked for the care and treatment of patients, and what would actually protect the privacy of patients, and not be used just as a tool of control or a tool of surveillance in the exam room. Um, by the government and the health plans. That's that's what it is now. Absolutely. I mean, this was all, you know, the, the vision from inside the Beltway and, and, like you said, across CEOs of hospitals and health care plans across America was to use this information technology as a Trojan horse to, you know, I- impose that vision of, of top-down care, of depersonalization of, ha- of care, you know, corporatization, you know, homogenized, pasteurized, depersonalized care. But I wonder, you know, as part of, you know, maybe a couple of rays of sunlight breaking through the dark clouds, you know, you have the president of the AMA in this interview with the Chicago Tribune saying, you know, much of what we're talking about right here, 
you know, that electronic health records are a particular point of frustration. Uh, he refers to EMRs that are currently in use as the kind of software you see only in a museum, you know, in a world where a three-year-old, a three-year-old child can pick up a smartphone without his parents even knowing and start using the thing and playing with the thing and, you know, understanding what happens when you click on an app and figuring that out with a, with a three-year-old's brain. Uh, and, and, and against that, you, you know, have a, a 53-year-old physician with 40 years of, of IT experience that, that can't make EMR software work safely. So it's a very interesting sort of contrast. So I wonder, you know, is there, you know, we're seeing it from the president of the AMA. We got maybe something, it, it, at least the Andy Savitt from CMS, I guess, acknowledges the, 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 the fact that doctors even exist to start with and that we have feelings and have a role in the system. I don't know. We're at the end of the uh, third segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Hello again and welcome back. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. I've got a very special guest, Twyla Brace, here from the uh, Citizens uh, or Council for Healthcare Freedom. Uh, we are talking about a lot of crazy stuff that has happened here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, including uh, this article that had come out with uh, malpractice-based uh, data that's that's coming out and talking about how much harm uh, EMRs are causing, uh, sort of in the context of some information uh, written by Dr. Robert Wachter in his book, uh, Cat- or, um, uh, The Digital Doctor, and uh, talking about how each of these claims has a very complicated history behind it, most likely. But luckily, uh, all this stuff's starting to come out. And uh, you know, to paraphrase an old song by Do- by Bob Dylan, uh, the times they are a changing, perhaps. I don't they know. Are. 
you know, look, look at this. Uh, you know, here's here's another example of, uh, and, and this one just kills me. Uh, this is another example from this article from from these uh, you know malpractice uh, generated EMR errors. Uh, so a patient comes in the um, emergency room and complains of, and here's the quote. Right here's the chief complaint: sudden onset of chest pains with burning epigastric pain and some relief with that acid. Well. Here's the problem. You know how in a, in a computer screen, you know, you type things into windows, right? And, and if the window is not big enough to hold everything that you type, all you see is a fragment of what you typed, right? And then you can, you can use little arrow keys to scroll back and forth, but you don't see the whole thing. So here's a, a classic design failure. Apparently, the window where the chief complaint goes was only big enough to display two words. And so the only thing the doctor saw was epigastric pain. So the whole sudden onset of chest pain and all that kind of stuff didn't show up. All they got was epigastric pain. And so, you know, based on a misread chief complaint, the patient was mismanaged and had a cardiac event days later. I don't know what actually happened to the patient. But, um, you know, a classic example of, of, you know, poor EMR design getting pushed out there into the front lines of patient care and causing disasters. Right. You know, I, I think that... Um one one of the things that you know patients care about, of course, is that they're they're treated well. And what you'll often hear is that what we want to do is we want to improve the quality of healthcare and we want to stop, you know, malpractice. We we uh, there's just too much malpractice happening, and we need to have more quality of care controls, and then we can you know everything will be coming up roses. <laughs> yes. But the fact of the matter is, as they add all of these distractions to the doctor, so there's all of these distractions for actually uh, listening to the patient, seeing the patient, knowing what's going on with the patient, hearing what the real uh, problem is, and, and then actually being able to think about it outside the box, right? Instead, they're looking into a box. They're distracted by the check boxes, yes. by the limited screens. And what you end up with is poor quality of, hair, of care, more reasons for the patient to be harmed and sued and not care about the doctor at all because the doctor is now so distracted by things that do not have to do with the patient but have to do with the outsiders, satisfying the outsiders, not the patients. And then I think the funniest thing is that they have all these um, patient satisfaction surveys and doctors yes. have told me that they can, that if they're really good and their patients tell them that they're really good and they tell other people that they're really good, then people come in and they, they say, well, yes, I got what I expected as, a, as compared to the doctor's excellent, right? And yes. so that even the patient satisfaction surveys aren't really accurate, but a lot of the doctors pay or their quality scores will be according to patient satisfaction. And what does the patient know? Do they know that the doctor is distracted by all of these other things? Are they really getting good quality care when they say the doctor's wonderful? Or is it just that, you know, the hospital room looked great and, you know, there's these things are just like faulty scorecards when the only thing that really matters is did the patient, uh, did the doctor take care of the patient and actually know what's going on and was able to act in a timely manner and think outside the box for that patient? Well, nobody, you know, the quality measurement stuff is so removed from, like you said, what actually counts. I mean, I, you know, I've never seen a quality metric that says, did the doctor get the diagnosis right the first time? You know, did the doctor 
contextualize the care, right? It's one thing to shove a handout in a patient's face, like we're required to do for meaningful use, and say, you know, here's your handout, take a hike, versus going through the contents, you know, uh, not so much of the handout, but of, of the relevant information. I mean, it's one thing to, to shove a piece of paper in a patient's face that says, you know, you need to reduce your alcohol consumption, reduce your caffeine consumption so that your reflux goes away and you need to stop smoking, as opposed to saying, okay, let's talk about, you know, how much alcohol do you drink? I mean, I can't tell you the number of patients that if you just ask them about alcohol consumption, they'll say, no, I don't drink. And then you go, well, how about a glass of wine every night? Oh, yeah, I have that. You know, it, it's like, you know, people don't, if you just ask a sterile question, you don't get the information you need. You need to have a, a, a back and forth conversation to really be a good history taker. And so much of what is mandated by the law is depriving us of our ability to do that, not only because we we have to do other things, but we don't have the bandwidth to do what we know needs to be done and what's required by law to be done. And, you know, in the end, just like you said, quality of care suffers, while at the same time, all the boxes we check say that everything's wonderful. That's right. You know, speaking as a former uh, emergency room nurse who did many a discharge with a patient, um, what I, one of the things that I have realized over the last few years is how poor the discharges have become. Oh, yeah. So I get a piece of paper, right? And, and being a nurse... I'll, I'll look at that piece of paper, and then I'll call the nurse back in and say, okay, let's talk about this. Because, you know, what exactly are you wanting me to do here? It's not even clear. And I think that that's just so bad. Because the, the one thing you want to do is have the patient feel confident in what they're supposed to do after the visit and what has happened, and are they supposed to come in again, and, you know, what are they supposed to be thinking about? What are they supposed to look for? <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's just gotten poor. Well, I can, give you, I can give you a story from less than a week ago in my own practice, Twyla. Um, I had a patient that we did a thyroidectomy on who is on a blood thinner, you know, because of atrial fibrillation, which is, of course, you know, a little change in the heart rhythm that puts you at risk of getting blood clots. So we, the, these people get put on a blood thinner. So, of course, to do thyroid surgery, you take them off the blood thinner for a while, and then you put them back on the blood thinner. And so we, you know, with the cardiologist input and blessing, we manage this blood thinner before and after the surgery. And so we do the thyroidectomy, and everything goes great. And it turns out that the patient was did not have that heart rhythm problem. They were in, you know, what they call sinus rhythm, right, for the listeners, the whole way through. And I said, okay, I think you know, we can probably delay the anticoagulant for another day or so because he's looking so good. But the problem is that my order, which was going to be restart the blood thinner three days later, could not be put into the electronic record for the discharge instructions, right? I had what they call a medication reconciliation, right? You know what that is. And, you know, for the listeners, that is this whole step that you do to review all the patient's medicines to say whether you need to use them or not use them and are there any changes in your medications as a result of your care. And in concept, the medication reconciliation is not a bad idea because in the paper era, that was kind of a weak spot. The problem is the computer didn't let me enter an order that said start the anticoagulant three days later. I just had a box to check to say you take the drug or you don't take the drug. And so I tried to compensate for that by uh, doing what, what they call a communication order, right? I mean, heaven forbid I actually talk to the nurse. I mean, I did that as well. So I tell the nurse face-to-face, 
tell this patient on the way out the door to restart their anticoagulant in three days. And I wrote in the chart what they call a communication order, where I actually typed this in and clicked sign and figured it would find its way to the patient's instructions. Well, I saw the patient post-op yesterday, and they said, well, what do I do with my blood thinner? I mean, I restarted it because I thought I had to, but, you know, the hospital told me I wasn't going to take it anymore. (laughs) So if I hadn't had an intelligent patient who understood that all of this paper stuff, you know, may have mistakes in it because it's so automated, if they had done just exactly what they were told and nothing else, they'd have gone without their blood thinner for eight or nine days, which might have been fine, but might have been a big problem. Right. And no way to, and I don't know what I'm going to do different next time. Right. It's, yeah, it's a problem. So, you know. Patients love the idea of technology, right, because technology is all wonderful. And for the most part, they just have no idea. No. No idea how difficult this is and how much danger it has put them in. They just. Have no idea. No, I mean it's just, and again, it's just this this trust that if you know we we hand you this ream of pre-printed stuff, it must all be God's truth because you know it came out of a, of a laser printer. Um, so let's we got what about three minutes left here, something like that. Two minutes left. Um, I you know, if you go back to Andy Savitz's speech, uh, you know the CMS administrator, he goes into uh, he he has this quote in here that was also picked up by the the health IT space. Uh, talking about that we are, quote, deadly serious about interoperability. So um, do you have any thoughts about where interoperability ought to fall in the grand scheme of things? I, I do, as a matter of fact. And I just want to say, um, really, the electronic health record mandated by the government, what other business would let the government mandate that they put essentially a surveillance system into their office to watch everything that they do, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so, so just to realize that, now if you look at interoperability, you know, what I've been telling people is interoperability is the only thing to protect us from HIPAA. So if you think that HIPAA protects your privacy, you're wrong. It actually opens up your medical record to this whole plethora of people, which uh, lately with the whole guns issue was in this uh, recent HIPAA uh, regulation on um, guns and firearms and who can report patients, that sort of thing, about how much, you know, le- how much leeway they have to report this kind of information. So interoperability means that all of these records, wherever you are, would be able to be linked together. There would be nobody uh, who, almost, who couldn't see your records. You would have no access to a fresh second opinion. Well, that's the problem. Not tainted by somebody else's opinion about you. Well, there was a huge difference. We're we're at the end of the show, so I'm just going to wrap it up. There's a huge difference, and you're so right, uh, that there's a huge difference in the culture that HIPAA inspired versus the actual letter of the law of HIPAA. They go in exactly opposite directions. Uh, Unfortunately, we're done. I wish we could go another hour because I love talking to you, Twyla, but we are finished. Uh, You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.